Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like cesspits, fields and friends. Oh, Sam, I want to I want to record the history of friends. We lost an episode of Friends many, many years ago. Or skunks, punks, monks, trunks, flunks <laughs> and drunks. I want to do the history of drunks, Very I good. think. Trump. The history of beer or wine <laughs> or something. Trump, However, Trump this is to digress. Your trunks would be brilliant. Trunks is all about boxes. Yeah. Uh, or or it could be about swimming trunks. You know, uh, <laughs> the minds go off in, in all sorts of wonderful ways. But as always, we monstrously digress, uh, slowing down the journey to the hard hat history that is part and parcel of our podcast because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew? Well, you would know, if only you had listened to the last two episodes of Histories of the Unexpected, that the history of ink is in fact all about elections and fraud, ancient China, the personality of US presidents, spies in the Cold War, and who could forget it? Renaissance letter writing. Or that the history of toys is all about Hidden Viking children. It's brilliant. We wrote about that in our book on the Vikings, which is available for purchase uh, for Christmas stockings around the world. It would fit very nicely in a Christmas stocking. It would. And we've sold several. We've I've signed several this week. Oh, wonderful. As they've been going out to our, going out to our listeners. Uh, the, you're probably wondering who is doing all of this speaking. Well, the man not sitting opposite me because we are still in lockdown. Let me say that if history was a rotting piece of meat in a jar, you've got, to, you've got to bear with me with this one. He would okay. be a nosy fly buzzing around looking for somewhere to lay his eggs of research and watch them grow under the microscope of critical thinking into wriggling maggots bursting with their own life, ready to take flight and explore the present and continue the cycle of fly-based historical work so needed in our modern world where the rotting meat of the past lurks on every surface. He is <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Sam, I think you need a round of applause for that. <laughs> I think that was, I think actually that was the best introduction. Thanks. 
that either of us has ever done. That it was frankly superb, poetic, prosaic. Can you be poetic, poetic, and prosaic at the same time? I, I, I imagine you can. Yes. Shakespeare, Shakespeare is. Um, uh, welcome, Sam, and hello. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me, unfortunately, because we're in social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown 2.0. Well, let's just say that if he were a 16th-century French phys- physician, <laughs> he would be none other than the chief surgeon to France's Charles the Ninth and Henri Trois. He would be Ambroise Paré, who lived 1510 to 1590 and reported on the Battle of Saint Quentin in 1557. And during this battle, he realised the maggot-infested patients often recovered much quicker than others. You guessed it. It's only the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. And hello, everyone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's taken a while to get here, but you you may uh, have guessed it by now. Uh, we are doing the history of maggots. Uh, maggots came up in a podcast several weeks ago. I have no idea which one it was. And um, it, it, I was inspired and I said, let's do the history of maggots. And I have no idea what we could possibly talk about with the history of maggots. Um, James took a little bit of persuading, but I think that now he's fully on maggoty board, that us allowing us to do the history of maggots. And um, <laughs> where on earth do we begin? How did you begin, James? How did I begin? Well, I I did I began as always with a little bit of internet research and all I could find. You having said that there'll be maggots everywhere, all I could find at first was medical maggots. So we have to talk about that. Yeah. Um. But then I went for a, a walk with a very good friend of mine, uh, and I said, "Do you know anything about maggots?" And he said, oh, "Well, I, just as it happens, uh, I I do." I have a very forgetful uh, mother-in-law who happens to be into taxidermy. And she, this is a hobby she's had for years. And what she does, she she, she sort of wanders around um, and picks up roadkill <laughs> and puts it in puts it in, in bags. And, and then you often find it in the freezer. Or when she's been particularly forgetful, you'll find it around the garden, left in a carrier bag. And he said there was one time when uh, she found a dead fox and she was particularly enamoured with its brush and she wanted to do something with this. So she put it in a plastic bag, brought it into the house this time and put it down and then forgot it. And lo and behold, a week later, the bag was simply, and the word he used was frothing. Oh, man. <laughs> it was literally teeming with them so so for me i think as a historian maggots are all about it's all about decay it's all about recycling it's about death it's about new life it's about it's part and parcel of what happens to each and every one of us but i will also share an anecdote from my own childhood uh, and well, this was when I lived in, in Yorkshire, uh, would you believe, in a little seaside town called Hornsey. And I remember hearing from my mother uh, a very sad tale about a small boy whose, whose mother had just died and how he had been picked on by some of the local children. And they'd been pretty beastly to him. And what they had done was forced him to eat maggots. Um, I think it's a pretty sort of tyrannical thing to do to a to a small child but I suppose that takes us off into the world of of insects and children and exploring and and experimentation and Gerald Durrell and and all of that sort of thing but I'm not going to talk about any of this uh when we're 
uh, when we're in our podcast today, I'm going to talk about other things. <laughs> uh, and I will keep those. I will keep those secret. I think the um, the point is when I was thinking about it, I too came across the use of medical maggots, and I I I actually knew that instinctively that we'd be able to talk about medical maggots. But I also was it was interesting what you were saying about taxidermy and maggots. Uh, it's all about. I mean, my brain was kind of skimming around this, but the idea of it them being so kind of fundamentally linked to history in the past and to the passing of time. Um, yes, uh, which is which I think is uh, fascinating. And one one thing I'd like to find out more about, I, I couldn't, but the um, is is detectives using uh, maggots to date the death of a corpse, uh, which was it's, it's a fundamentally historical thing. So only certain flies or maggots, I'm, I'm being a bit vague and off the top of my head here, actually appear after a certain amount of time. So there is a there is a fundamental kind of historical there, there are fundamental historical tool. Which is really, really. Is that a thing? It is. Re- is that a thing? It genuinely is a thing. However, um, as huh. uh, you also touched on a few things, which um, which I I was going to talk about as well. So I'm going to start, if I may, um, because you may. you have just talked about a bit of bullying, a bit of forcing people to eat maggots, and that just so happens to be exactly what I have come across, um, <laughs> but not in Hornsey in the early 1980s, uh, but in early medieval China. Always, ah. always interested in the history of China after my many, many trips out there. Um, there's a wonderful book called Behaving Badly in Early and Medieval China by Harry Rothschild and Leslie Wallace. Um, it was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2017. And he writes a chapter particularly about filial piety in medieval China. It's a very big thing in Chinese history. Um, what I'm talking about here is being essentially good to one's parents taking care of your parents but it's more than that it's um it's also about being well behaved engaging in good conduct i suppose you could say um and and not just towards your parents it goes very broad it's also about just basically being well behaved outside the home as well as inside the home um because that brings a good name to one's parents and also to to one's ancestors as well which is a really important part of chinese history so you're not just conscious of um the reputation of you and your parents, but also of those who are deceased, the ancestors. Um, advising parents is an important part of it as well, including dissuading them from moral unrighteousness. Have you ever uh, dissuaded your parents from moral unrighteousness, James? Uh, uh, every Sunday evening, <laughs> I dissuade them from moral unrighteousness. I, I give them a, a filial phone call. Uh, where I piously upbraid them for their their sins of the week. Very good. So um, <laughs> one of the ways in which the, the importance of filial piety was taught in early medieval China was through storytelling, through narratives. Basically, like we talked about this recently about, um, was it the history of fear? I'm not sure. I think it was. Um, how nursery rhymes, British, um, you know, European modern nursery rhymes and children's stories uh, used fear and kind of horror to get people to behave in a certain way. It's remarkably similar in early and um, medieval China. I'm going to talk here about um, a Chinese guy called Gan Bao, and he was writing in the mid, well, the first quarter of the 300s. Um, so, uh, so I'll give you a, a British reference. So, um, in UK, still under Roman rule, but Roman rule is kind of collapsing. A bit, and there are all sorts of attacks going on by the Saxons and the, and the Scots as well. Um, so the early three hundreds, and he writes a, a particularly interesting type of filial story. So there, there are not just one story; there are all sorts of types of filial story. And this one is—you'll be proud of me, James, because you are a. <clears throat> 
historian of gender. This is a filial story particularly relating to daughters-in-law, right? Mm. And um, particularly to do with female servants. So you've got to bear in mind there are all sorts of other stories as well. But this is uh, a kind of a theme which which comes um, across in medieval China a lot. This is the earliest example of it. So around about the 300s. And it's all about a guy called Sheng Yan. So what you need here is you need a son, you need a daughter-in-law, and you need a blind mother. If you've got those things, then you can have this wonderful filial story. And it goes like this. The mother's been ill for a very long time. and She goes blind as a result of her illness. Her filial uh, excellent son insists on feeding his mother himself, looking after her, because he becomes very unsatisfied with his maidservant's care for his mother. And because he becomes dissatisfied with her, Sheng beats the maidservant um, to, to demonstrate displeasure. Uh, one day, Sheng is not there, and so the maidservant has to feed his mother, and she puts maggots in her food. She, Ooh. his mother, thinks that the food is delicious, but but, but unusual, it's strange, and so she hides some of it to show her son. This is what I've had from the maidservant. He then comes home. He sees the food. He sees the maggoty food. And he's horrified. But <clears throat> what he does is he, he's overcome by emotion. He embraces his mother. He becomes um, immensely devoted to her, even more so. And because of that devotion, because of that filial piety and the horror at this, uh, um, his mum being fed the maggots, his mother's sight is actually restored. What's interesting in this entire story is you don't hear anything about the maidservant. She's so kind of uh, fundamental to the story, but... Um, because she doesn't demonstrate this party, she does this terrible stuff. She's not named. She's not punished. You don't you just you basically know nothing about her. She's a sort of evil shadow. Um, and uh, I mean, I suppose it concludes with the fact that the, that her unfilial act, all that does, is it serves to to uh, highlight um, the filial son. Now, there are all sorts of other stories like this. In medieval China, there's another one here. So if you just take this theme in this one, um, the woman feeds the mother maggots. But this is another one. This is from um, Gansu province, Dunhuang. I've talked about Dunhuang before. It's near the Gobi Desert. So very similar. Jian Sheng, here we are. His mother is also old, also blind. And uh, there are bandits approaching the border. He's forced to fight for them. And his new bride remains at home. Again, we've got these themes. You've got a blind mother. You've got a... Um, a, a daughter-in-law who is stuck at home. But she hates her husband, Jian Sheng, because he's mean, or he's mean in status. And she would eat things that um, that were lovely, but then would give uh, his mother horrible food. And this is Zhang's mother saying, I've not ingrained obedience within you. That is why I suffer these hardships. The new bride becomes furious and she then goes out and gets pig uh, excrement and then mixes that with his mother-in-law's food, gives it to her to eat. And then he, um, she uh, curses her, insults her, and the story goes on. Um, and then the son comes home and then the... the, the 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The unfilial daughter-in-law again is completely removed from the story the spotlight falls on the sun so there's a really really interesting story here um also an interesting historical theme of feeding mothers-in-law horrible things one of which is maggots and this james made me think of the twits oh the twits <laughs> is one of my favorite stories yeah here you are. I'm, i read this i'm gonna send you i'm gonna ping you over a link in a minute but let me just say that the, the twits we don't know it's written in 1979 i was two at the time very important interesting part of my own history and there's a really interesting history of pranks here where the, the twits the mr and mrs twit are trying to to get at each other uh and in one mrs twit takes out her glass eye puts it in her husband's beer mug while he's not looking and then finds it at the bottom um, in response for that, Mr. Twit puts a frog in Mrs. Twit's bed um, and claims it's a giant skilly wiggler with teeth like screwdrivers. <laughs> I love that <laughs> phrase. And then there's this wonderful bit, um, and I think James, you're going to. I'm going to send you that link, and you can you can help us through this. But you know about the Twits as well. I take. I, it. Do, I know about the Twits. One of my favourite things is where he, the Mr. Twit, uh, shaves off uh, on a daily basis a certain amount of his wife's walking stick. Uh, to make her think that she's shrinking, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> uh, but one of my favourite my favorite bits here, not only uh, is Mr. Twit getting food stuck in his beard and Roald Dahl goes, absolutely goes to town uh, with this. It made my children squeal with laughter when I read it to them earlier on. But one of my favourite chapters is The Wormy Spaghetti, yes. uh, where Mrs. Twit uh, gets her husband back for the frog twit. And I'll read this to you. The next day, to pay Mr. Twit back for the frog trick, Mrs. Twit sneaked out into the garden and dug up some worms. She chose big long ones and put them in a tin 
and carried the tin back to the house under her apron. At one o'clock she cooked spaghetti for lunch and she mixed the worms in with the spaghetti, but only on her husband's plate. The worms didn't show because everything was covered with tomato sauce and sprinkled with cheese. Hey, my spaghetti's moving, cried Mr Twit, poking around in it with his fork. It's a new kind, Mrs Twit said, taking a mouthful from her own plate, which of course had no worms. It's called squiggly spaghetti. It's delicious. Eat it up while it's nice and hot. Mr Twit started eating twisting the long tomato-covered strings around his fork and shoveling them into his mouth. <coughs> Soon there was tomato sauce all over his hairy chin. It's not as good as the ordinary kind, he said, talking with his mouthful. It's too squishy. I find it very tasty, Mrs Twit said. She was watching him from the other end of the table. It gave her great pleasure to watch him eating worms. I find it rather bitter, Mr Twit said. It's got a distinctly bitter flavour. Buy the other kind next time. Mrs Twit waited until Mr Twit had eaten the whole plateful. Then she said, You want to know why your spaghetti was squishy? Mr Twit wiped the tomato sauce from his beard with a corner of the tablecloth. Why? he said. And why it had a bitter taste, a nasty bitter taste? Why? he said. Because it was worms, <laughs> cried Mrs Twit, clapping her hands and stamping her feet on the floor and rocking with horrible laughter. What a mean Mrs Twit. Absolutely. Um, so there we go. Uh, and and I, I wonder whether Roald Dahl, writing in the 1970s, he actually he wrote that book uh, because he wanted to do something against beards. He was furious and everyone in the late <laughs> 70s um, uh, suddenly wearing beards. We, you should all listen to our podcast on beards. But this is a bit we didn't talk about. Um, and but I was wondering if he would have been aware of the medieval Chinese pranks from the 4th century of feeding your... Uh, loved ones uh, with maggots. So there you are. What a wonderful history there. I imagine that's exactly where he got it from. <laughs> I hope so. So riffing on the theme of eating maggots, I want to talk a little bit about maggoty cheese. And I talked about this the other day, uh, very, very briefly. And it's a special cheese that comes from Sardinia called Kazumatsu cheese. And this literally means rotten or putrid cheese. And actually, it's not just in Sardinia. It's also all over uh, different parts of Italy. And it's made from traditional sheep milk cheese. And what you do is you cut it open and then you in insert flies into it to lay their eggs. And what happens is when these larvae hatch and they basically break down the cheese is fats and you get this sort of beautiful creamy texture. The problem is that also uh, it's full of maggots. Uh, it's the acid from the maggots digestive system that breaks down these fats. And you should all read a book called The Science of Cheese, uh, a wonderful book that I came across. And it says that cheese skippers or maggots are able to jump a few inches. So when you open up uh, the cheese. They're able to actually jump up. Uh, and so the people eating the cheese are advised to protect themselves. But I just want to read you uh, a little extract from The Science of Cheese. One cheese variety deliberately includes flies and is illegal to sell, though it can be made for home consumption. 
Kazumatsu, rotten cheese, is a sheep's milk cheese made in Sardinia and containing live larvae of Piophila kazai. Pecorino is left in the open air with part of the rind removed to allow cheese skippers to lay eggs. When they hatch, the larvae eat their way into the cheese, breaking down the fat and protein to the point where some of the structure liquefies. The cheese is considered safe to eat as long as the maggots are alive. Cheese skippers, I love that phrase, are able to jump a few inches, so consumers are advised to protect their eyes. I can imagine people wearing <laughs> safety goggles, goggles, <laughs> safety goggles, like those onion goggles yeah. that you can buy. Uh, you should all buy uh, somebody a pair of onion goggles for Christmas. Uh, people who do not wish to eat live maggots will place kazu matsu inside a paper bag and seal it. The maggots will bang around in the bag until they have suffocated and the cheese is then consumed. The Guinness World Records in 2009 listed it as the most dangerous cheese to human health and the Italian government considers it to be a traditional food that has been continuously produced for more than 25 years, making it exempt from some of their safety rules. And this type of product will never fly in other countries where regulations prohibit such a thing. A terrible punning on, um, on, on the fly there. Now, one of the problems uh, relating to this is that some food scientists argue that if you eat <laughs> this cheese, it is possible for the larvae to survive your stomach acid and to remain in the intestine. And this leads to a condition known as pseudomyasis. And I would suggest you, you, you Google this. P-S-E-U-D-O-M-Y-I-A-S-I-S. Uh, it's extraordinary because what happens is that these larvae basically stay alive in the host and they basically start eating at your insides. And if you're eating yourselves at the moment, probably don't Google this, but you will be able to see all sorts of awful, gruesome pictures. Uh, I came across a picture of a, of a cat uh, that had a, a larvae or maggot sort of living in, in him. Can you imagine that, eating a cheese that... Um, you know, that basically lives inside you. And this led me to think about other kinds of dangerous food. And one of the most dangerous, dangerous foods in the world is Japan's pufferfish or fugu, uh, which is a, a very deadly uh, fish indeed that contains highly um, toxic poison uh, in all its organs, particularly the liver. And sushi chefs that are that um, prepare it have to be specially trained and certified in order to handle the fish. Knives that they're using to um, deal with the fish, to cut it up, need to be kept separately from everywhere else. Uh, but it, nonetheless, it is a, ab an absolute delicacy in Japan. And there are other sort of dangerous, uh, you know, lethal fish um, around the world, um, including the silver stripe blassop, uh, which is an Indian ocean uh, fish, which again has really sort of poisonous uh, parts to it. And also um, Koreans love uh, something called uh, nakti, uh, which is a small octopus. And the octopus tentacles are cut off fresh and they're still wriggling 
They're served raw and still wriggling uh, when you eat them. And it doesn't poison you. Uh, but there are records of several people who have asphyxiated because the suction cups uh, have basically stuck in their throats and prevented them from breathing. So there we are, uh, poisonous, going from the twits and um, and poisonous um, and and eating eating worms. Uh, we go to potentially poisonous cheese uh, with full of maggots uh, and also to. Um, dangerous uh food products around the world it makes me think of of um uh, i'm a celebrity get me out of here and the bush tucker trials it does and there's there is an important history to all of this james which is i think what you were trying to get round to in the end <laughs> uh, no i just wanted to talk about magnetic cheese <laughs> well i mean the whole point here is 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 what you eat and how you eat it and that, that that's an interesting cultural thing that we find disgusting or not and how that's changed over time so eating insects is something that's happened you know, throughout history, isn't it? So, and um, you know, I, I came across people when I was in China who eat uh, eat silkworm larvae, and that's something that's happened for centuries. I mean, that that cheese itself is centuries old; it's a centuries old recipe. Um, but the idea the idea of actually eating insects is is millennia old. It's much older indeed. And the interesting point of we there's a we might be disgusted by the idea of eating insects now in our modern world, but it certainly wasn't the case if you if you go go back in time and you go to different different places. Uh, I found a wonderful little um, description. Actually, I found a couple of um, uh, evidence of Romans eating insects, Greeks eating insects, um, but here is a 19th century 1850s account by Major Howard Egan. He is, this is a great job title, he's superintendent of the Pony Express in Nevada, <laughs> 1850. He's, um, he's come across uh, from, from Ireland, settled in America, and uh, becomes a Mormon. Anyway, they end up working with Native Americans, and they take part in something called a cricket drive. The idea here is they basically dig a series of trenches, each one's about 30 to 40 feet long and in the shape of a moon, they then cover the trenches with a thin layer of stiff grass, drive the crickets, these are wingless crickets, into the grass, cover the trenches, then they set fire to the grass, leaving all the crickets stuck in the trenches. We followed them on horseback and I noticed that there were but very few crickets left behind. As they went down, the line of crickets grew thicker and thicker till the ground ahead of the drivers, men, women and children, was black as coal with the excited, tumbling mass of crickets. I went down below the trenches and I ventured to say there were not one out of a thousand crickets that passed those trenches. Then what happens is the women get together and they start gathering the insects which they've trapped. And he carries on writing in his diary. Now here is what I saw a squaw doing that had a small baby strapped to a board or a willow frame which she carried on her back with a strap over her forehead. When at work she would stand or lay the frame and kid where she could see it at any time. She soon had a large basket as full as she could crowd with crickets. Laying it down near the kid, she took a smaller basket and filled it. I should judge she had over four bushels of the catch. But wait, the Indians were leaving for their camp about three or four miles away. This squaw sat down and beside the larger basket, put the band over her shoulders, got on her feet with it, then took the strapped kid and placed him on top, face up, picked up the other basket and followed her lord and master who tramped ahead with nothing to carry except his own lazy carcass. 
podcast. <laughs> what a great way of finishing that. So um, a fantastic description there of uh, hunting for insects to eat from America in the 1850s. And it's all we realise that eating maggots um, is, yes, it's to do with Chinese filial piety. Yes, they do it centuries old in Sardinia, but it has its own horse, its own history. It's part of a much broader history of eating insects. Have you ever eaten an insect? Uh, yes. Have you ever eaten witchy grubs or things like that? Yeah, or mealworms. Uh, definitely. Or... I couldn't tell you where, but I absolutely have. I I, I ate it at We the Curious, uh, which is the brilliant science museum in Bristol. Yeah. And I think I think we're moving we're moving towards a a world where we are going to have to sort of vary the kinds of things that we're going to we're going to have to eat. And things like mealworms and grasshoppers and giant ants and silkworms are actually are actually quite good. There was a a recent um, late night opening at the Natural History Museum where they paired such insects with with wine, uh, part of wine tasting, uh, because they're actually they're actually quite good for you. Uh, they're very rich in vitamins uh, like iron and zinc uh, and omega three. Um, you know they're low in calories, but also. Um, when you think about the sort of the, the sort of increasing population, you think about the enormous pressure that livestock industry is putting on on the planet, um, and and also the 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 sort of land that's taken up with agricultural uh, production of crops. Actually, eating insects could be a way of achieving some sort of sustainable way of life, yeah. um, and and sort of rebalancing. The economy. It makes um, you wonder so... how it all kind of started off. That thinking of chickens, cows, pigs, fish being being a more appropriate food. You know, th- these are the big questions, aren't they? Yeah, well, I've, the big I, questions. I, in I, I have an answer, James, for you. Here. Henry the Fourth of France in sixteen hundred publicly declares he wants to put a chicken in the pot of every peasant on every Sunday. Not worms or maggots, a chicken, and that's what we, you know, that's what we've come to learn. Really interesting. I have a chicken, chicken in the pot most weeks. Um, well, there we go. We've um, we've gone all over the place talking about eating maggots. Maybe this podcast can just be about eating maggots. We're going to come back with a second episode, um, further exploring the wonderful wriggly history of maggots. So do please bear with us. You can follow me on Twitter. Please do follow. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, which I hope you all are, do please follow my new podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We also have a Patreon page and during these times of lockdown we can't tour anymore. We have production costs and anything you could do uh, to help support us would be very gratefully appreciated. We also have a website that you should check out, historiesoftheunexpected.com and we have a series of books uh, available for signing to go into Christmas stockings. That is. Make somebody very, very happy. Absolutely. And um, news of the vaccine and the, and the world changing again um, inspires us to get back on the stage so we can go and do some of those cancelled 30 gigs. <laughs> which we, Absolutely. Which we had to cancel. So we'll come to a theatre near you, I promise you. Uh, thanks guys for listening. We will come back for a further investigation of the history of maggots. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.